0: The anti-poverty charity Oxfam says the UK is one of the most unequal countries in the developed world.
1: We are so much more unequal than anybody else.
0: Looking back at the big political upsets of the past few years, there are lots of possible causes. We've covered some of them on this podcast, the split between liberals and authoritarians, the influence of divisive campaigning tactics and the spread of poisonous online subcultures. But what if all of that is down to the one big thing we have in common in the UK, the US, Italy, seemingly everywhere. Growing inequality, particularly between the very richest and the rest of us. It's clear many Americans still feel
2: plenty of anxiety. 65% of voters say they are very worried about the economy. Those very worried voters, they broke for Donald Trump. Economic anxiety. Economic
1: anxiety. This is not, in fact, about economic anxiety.
2: Economic
0: anxiety, economic insecurity. These are the phrases commentators use to explain why people voted for Donald Trump, voted for Brexit. But what does that really mean?
3: For people that have always had privilege, equality can feel like oppression.
0: And has wider anxiety about wealth and about
1: status, has it corrupted the core of our culture? Keeping up with the Joneses has literally become keeping up with the Kardashians.
0: You're listening to Polarise, the podcast from the RSA that's all about trying to understand the forces driving us further apart and what can be done
2: about them. It's presented by Matthew Taylor and by Ian Leslie, that's me. As always, this podcast isn't about orchestrating an argument between people with opposing views, but it's about understanding the polarising political moment that we're living through right now. In this episode, we're asking, are economic divides to blame for everything else
0: that's broken in our politics. Coming up, we're going to be talking to Faiza Shaheen, who's director of the think tank, CLASS, about the effects of living in unequal societies. Also, I'm going to be talking to Lauren Greenfield, the director of a new film, documenting our obsession with wealth and what she sees as the corruption of the American dream. But before we get started on all of that, Ian, I want you to lay your cards on the table in terms of this issue the question of, you know, is it all at heart an economic matter, a kind of Marxian analysis, really, I guess. We call this bit full disclosure. So,
2: Ian, what's your starting point? Yeah, so, so my starting point is that there's this, a tendency on the left to want to simplify everything and to bring everything back to economic issues, right? It was the basis of kind of Marxist uh, materialism. You still see it now, right? That all the the kind of political problems that we see and the cultural anxieties that, that surround us can be explained through the prism of economic inequality. But I think it really, it leaves out a huge amount and, and, and it leaves out, to use a really kind of big bland word, it leaves out culture, right? It leaves out uh, religion leaves out racial and and gender identity. Uh, leaves out all all these kind of social changes that that contribute to to the way people feel and the way they act. And just taking you know the Brexit and the Trump votes, which were the two kind of seismic UK and US events in the last couple of years, there was this narrative that took hold that this was a kind of vote of the left behind. That these were people who had been right at the bottom of the pile who who were kind of getting their own back against elites. But when you look at who voted in both cases, it's a coalition of, of, of some of those people and a lot of people who are quite middle-class and, and affluent. So where the Leave vote really piled up was actually in the in home counties, right? Some of the most affluent parts of, of the country, you saw the kind of uh, the highest Leave. So there's 68% Brexit support in Rayleigh and Wickford in South Essex, one of the most affluent constituencies in the UK. And there was a recent report from UCL. Well, it was 2017, but a very kind of comprehensive look at the... The, the reasons behind the Leave and Remain votes, uh, which concluded that social status, not social class, predicts Brexit support, right? So in, in, in their words, our results don't support the left-behind narrative but show a strong cultural dimension.
0: Now, so I think we're going we're gonna to have a healthy... Of dis- course, we're not going to polarise because that would rather destroy the point of the entire programme. But I think we are going to have a disagreement about this because I, I think that you, what you're missing in this... He said there are always two steps to the argument. It isn't the case, I don't think, that as it were, sheer metrical inequality, the, the Gini coefficient, the level of inequality, by itself leads to particular outcomes like voting patterns or higher levels of social pathologies like suicide or mental health or whatever. I think there are steps in between, but I still think you can trace the importance of economic factors. So, Let me give you a couple of of, of examples of what I mean. We know that economic insecurity is very high in this country. And the RSA has done work that shows that actually a lot of people on above average earnings, maybe living in that constituency in Essex, say they suffer from economic insecurity. I would argue that economic insecurity is worse in more unequal societies because the penalty for going down, for downward social mobility, is higher whereas in more egalitarian societies it's not so frightening the possibility that you might lose your job or your status isn't so frightening because there's a stronger citizenship entitlement and at the same time i'd say that whilst you're right that you know religion and belief and culture, these things are all important. I would say that those differences are exacerbated by economic inequality. So, you know, I might find it irritating that you don't have the same religion as me, the same beliefs as me, the same football club as me. But, you know, I can kind of, okay, I can cope with that. But I can't cope with it in a society where there is an underlying sense of profound injustice.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think they all play into each other. So, so you know, well, I'm not trying to choose one or the other. But what, what I see uh, often, though, is that people want to place economic uh, uh, inequality at the root of all this, and everything kind of kind of grows out. I think it's a component, like you say, it in- exacerbates other things, but those things also exacerbate economic I- inequality. And I, I don't think it's just about insecurity either. So uh, there's a study of, of Trump voters who switched from Obama to Trump from 2012 to 2016, and she found that there was no change in their feelings about economic risk. They didn't feel like they were at risk economically. What they felt was their dominant status as white male Christians was was at risk, right? That is a cultural problem. Um, and it's about it's about racial and, and, and social identity. Well, and, we're, we're, and I'm sure it plays yeah. into economics, but it, the, economics is not the answer.
0: We'll ex- we, we're bound to explore this a bit further. But I just want to ask you one last question before we talk to our guest, Faisal Shaheen, which is... You know, you, you um, have admitted to the world that you're involved in the world of advertising, which is... I have you. confessed
2: to that. Which yeah. is big of you. Yeah, Um
0: Thank you. I heard someone speak soon after Brexit. I can't remember her name. It was very interesting. She said that... And, and what interests me is why, we, why have we started talking more about inequality. Why does it pe- seem people care about it more? Because what she was saying was that there'd been a shift in advertising, a little bit of a shift from advertising based upon the idea that if you buy this good, you will differentiate yourself from everybody else. It'll make you different to a bit more advertising that's about people doing stuff together, about the fact that products, whether it's, you know, McDonald's or supermarkets, actually bring, make community Stronger. I mean, I loved that idea. Is it
2: any truth to it? Do you think? Yeah, I think I think there is quite a lot of truth to that. If you look at the way, say, Nike has has developed over the years, right? It used to be the, the focus of the brand was on aspirational athletics, right? So you you would get Michael Jordan, you get sports stars, and you say, look at these are the most these are the gods of, of this world. And you can be a little bit, bit more like them if you if you try the brand. Nike has now reorganized its whole business and brand around creating communities, running clubs and, you know, people sharing data about their athletic activities and so on. Um, So it's much more about feeling of we're all doing this together and we're all kind of, you know... Now, you know, it's it's a great way to, to make money. I'm not kind of pretending that's some sort of benign social mission, but it, it, it's an interesting kind of refocus, and you're seeing it in, in quite a lot of other brands too. Yeah,
0: because I noticed after her talk, I noticed in a McDonald's advert that was all about who's awake at three o'clock in the morning, all having a McDonald's together, everything from students to railway workers. Yeah. You know, and I love the kind of emphasis on inclusion. So maybe, maybe society is becoming fatally riven, but the thing that will save us is advertising. Somehow I doubt that. Joining us to talk about all things inequality and economic anxiety is the economist, commentator and activist Faiza Shaheen. Faiza is the director of the Centre for Labour and Social Studies. I don't know, Faiza, did you call it that in order that you could get to the acronym CLASS?
3: Yes, I wasn't involved in making up the name, but I do believe there was an element of like fitting in the words with the acronym.
0: See, people think, you know, lefties and sociologists have got no creativity, but that's brilliant. <laughs> you know, Centre for Labour and Social Studies class. You anyway. need to
2: work on the RSA because RUSA
0: is not. You know. No, it's not great. And <laughs> not so people think we're an insurance company. Right. Faisi, so you've spent your career researching and campaigning on inequality. So just let's start off by why that? Why, why, was, why is that the issue you have dedicated your career to so far?
3: I mean, I think from a really young age I became aware of sort of race inequalities and race politics and through my father, who would get constantly stopped by the police. He was this um big dark Fijian man and um you know, and he always used to say that like it's race you talk about racism, you'd talk about Muhammad Ali, you'd talk about Malcolm X. And so, you know, a lot of that came from him. And then I had this mad experience of my dad was a car mechanic growing up in a very working-class household and neighborhoods, and then getting into the University of Oxford and seeing this extreme privilege and this extreme sense of entitlement and extreme wealth. Coming up to the first Christmas, I would go home and work and everyone else was going skiing. And it just kind of really alerted me to how unequal this country was, which often you don't feel when you live in your neighbourhood. We never talked about class because we were all working class. Like, there was no sense of that. So I think because I had this weird experience of seeing both extremes... I just became very aware of it, and also I became aware of the consequences of that as well. So like I said, some of the entitlement at the top, and some of the ways in which I sat around at Oxford and listened to people and thought, "You're not really that smart. People I grew up with <laughs> were much smarter than you, and the only reason they're not here is because they weren't wealthy or they're not wealthy. Um, so, so yeah, I- so I became really passionate at that time. and people used to say crazy things to me there, and it just made me really aware of how awful some of these PPists. So, so
0: so, so Faisal, I can't – I mean, we're going to go straight into this because, you know, I I studied sociology at university a very long time ago. But one of the questions that always gets asked quite early on in a sociology course is what is it that most matters to people about their identity? You know, is it class? Is it ethnicity? Is it gender? And how do these things play off together? You know, is a black middle-class woman got more in common with a black working-class man or with a white middle-class woman? And I think Ian wants to kind of say the things that polarises aren't just down to economic factors. So you've, you've lived through those kind of multiple disadvantages. How do they kind of interrelate to each other in your view?
3: Yeah, I think we make these really false distinctions and false arguments about is it this or that? And actually, it's the intersections, it's the combination of those things. So absolutely, going back to the example of of Oxford, there were some rich Pakistanis there, and um, there weren't really any Fijians. my mum was Pakistani, so you know, but they were they were very rich so on the one hand, culturally, you know we could talk about eat and various foods, but actually they'd had a very very different life experience to me being rich um so yeah, I mean, I think these things you can connect on different levels, but I think when you talk about what matters most it's often the thing that shines out most to people and what people. Are reacting to so I think being a black woman, for instance, even if you're middle class, you will still experience lots of racism. And actually, that comes out in the data. It comes out in the data in terms of you know having a graduate degree and it's still being harder for you to get a job if you have a Muslim sounding name or an African sounding name. And you know, and that's. But it's your organization's
0: if, called. Sorry to interrupt. But your own organization's called Class, and that kind of implies that in the end, it is the class differences. It is the economic differences that are ultimately the most important thing and that's kind of linked into something that i want us to talk about which is the idea that economic inequality is the thing that can exacerbates everything else that that possibly racism and sexism would be would be controlled more in a more equal society But inequality makes everything worse do you think that's true
3: Yeah, no, I do think that inequality makes everything worse. Um, I mean, the reason we're called class is because for a long time, we'd forgotten about talking about class. It was this weird thing that happened on the night of Brexit when Dimbleby suddenly said, oh, it's the working class, as if the BBC hadn't said that for a long time. You know, we're called class, but that's not to say that we don't recognise the intersections, and not just the intersections, and this is where sort of the economic and the the social comes together. So I'm an economist by training. I've done lots of work on economic inequality, wealth and income inequality. But the truth is is that there is something else that's happening. And I think too often people think that if you just solve economic inequality... Issues of racism and, and xenophobia and all of those things will go away. But there is that it won't. There is also an element of prejudice. So you can't just do one or the other, right? I think maybe the Blair age or the kind of progressive age where they weren't thinking about the market economy and how that was functioning. They thought as long as they sought out discrimination through laws, et cetera, that will solve race inequalities. That didn't work either. Because those inequalities, the the economy is racist, the economy is sexist, right? So because you didn't sort out that part of the puzzle, I've been doing a lot of work on that side. But that's not to say that you don't also have to have a a dual project, essentially, to to do both those things.
0: So you've just come back from the States. uh, And Ian was saying earlier that if you look at the Trump data, it doesn't look as though it's about... Poverty or even economic insecurity it looks more like it's about a loss of wh- white people's sense of a loss of entitlement what's your what's your reflection on on that? what was the polarizing factor in the states inequality or or race so
3: or it's ethnicity? definitely but it's definitely both I mean I would say so I've just been with a whole bunch of black activists talking about this very issue and yeah, they're very clear that this is what has been termed as a white lash as well right so it, for people that have always had privilege. Equality can feel like oppression. But there is we have heightened awareness of the issue of economic inequality, and that has made people angry. But I do think part of it is that they haven't known where to put that anger. And the same thing that's the thing that's happened at the same time is that we've had continuous narratives of it's the immigrants, it's the black people, it's the their scroungers, they're so whilst economic inequality and awareness of that would have you would have hoped to have led us to a place where people want more socialism, say. Um, in other ways, it's because it has been coupled with a project of hate and fear, it's also led people to to this place where they're blaming people that look a bit different to them or sound a bit different to them.
2: And I think, you know, to a certain extent, we're all part of an experiment here. You know, very few societies are as diverse as the UK or, or the US and... Cultural diversity and and living through change; these things are not easy, right? If if you wanted a kind of like totally cohesive society where where nobody was worried about anybody else's status, then you would also have a very kind of um stagnant society where nothing much changed. So. I just think these are really hard problems. And I, I, it's hard to just say, you know, we can, we can fix this if we fix the economic problems. Because I, I think they just kind of get them. These are much deeper and wider issues to, to, uh, to do with how do we create a society that basically no, nobody's ever done this before in the great kind of span of history. And you can, so, so when people point to, say, to the Scandinavian countries and they say, well, look, you know, they've got lower inequality. And, and you say, well, yeah, but, and, and a kind of bigger welfare state and so on, higher trust. But also, they're much more culturally and, and racially homogenous than, than than the UK. And if you are, you know, proud and and and, and you love diversity, using that as a as, as a model is not, you know, not something necessary to to aspire to.
3: Yeah, I mean, I just want to go back to something in the way that you've just said it in terms of the links between inequality and cultural diversity. And look, the big thing we haven't done in this country nor in the US is had a reckoning about this country's past. So we have complete empire amnesia in this country just in the way that there hasn't been a real reckoning or an understanding of the way in which slavery and black people are the basis of the economic foundation of the country of the u s. free labor, right? And so once you start to understand this country's, his- this country's history, both in its hand in slavery, but also why someone like me, who's half Pakistani and half Fijian, would end up in the UK, because both those countries were part of... Well, Pakistan is part of India. We're part of the British Empire. Unless you have that conversation, that understanding, people think, oh, we're so we're so great. We let in all these people from elsewhere. They don't understand the history of, you know, my ancestors paying taxes to this country and being part of this country's success for hundreds of years. Oh, yeah. And so I think there's I think that is also part of the reason why people Look at cultural diversity as oh it's a new thing and we're so great and we you know it's because we don't understand this country's history the history of emigration not just immigration of you know of this country so d- just to put that out there well, can we
0: just go back to the issue of of, of class so it, it is interesting the attitudes seem to have changed in the last few years although actually inequality as I'm sure you know because you're an economist has been pretty stable. For the last kind of 15 or so years, you know, what happened was a kind of massive increase in inequality mm-hmm. through the kind of uh, 80s and the early part of the, the 90s. And then under Labour, you get a kind of stabilisation, but you don't get any kind of meaningful reduction.
3: And th- and this is where measures of inequality have been completely wrong. So you've spoken there, Matthew, about how we've seen a sort of stagnation of inequality. What we... Ha- so that's true we had according to one measure the gini coefficient we had this incredible increase in the 80s of of inequality what we've seen in the last sort of 15 20 years is the extremes so under blair we didn't see the bottom fall out but we did see the runaway rich the rich just got so much richer than everyone else um, you know, taking a bigger and bigger share of the pie. What we've seen in the last eight years, because of austerity and public spending cuts and the welfare net being destroyed, is the poor at the other end as well. So when you're using food banks, right, so we've gone from giving out food parcels in the thousands to in over a million now. Um, homelessness has tripled. We've, see, You know, visually, it looks like inequality has grown. Yeah, yeah. And so that kind of data and that kind of framing of the question where inequality hasn't grown does not speak to people and actually makes people angry because they're like, what are you talking about? I can see it. I can see it on the streets. I can see it even if it's not in my own life. You know, the conversations I have about inequality now with the everyday person are much more animated. People feel it much more. They know it exists. But again, it goes back to when you're angry about it, have we given them enough to say, well, this is what we do about it? Or do you go back to going, well, you know what it is? It's because we had all of this immigration.
0: Pfizer, thanks so much for for joining us. I think what I've got out of this conversation is that something can be very important, very big. doesn't mean it's simple, though that it is also in in understanding inequality it's a complex picture but if people want to hear from you and i'm i'm guessing that having had this conversation they will i hear you've got a podcast too
3: we did have a three-part podcast um on class that you can find on our website and yeah it goes into some of these things in real depth and there's a funny conversation with my brother sister and i
0: Mm. (laughs) great i will i will certainly listen to that that. Uh, thanks for joining us Thank thank you Well, that was a fascinating conversation. Um, but the emergence of inequality in income and wealth, it's not just been an economic phenomenon, but it's a cultural one too. For 25 years, the photographer and Emmy-winning director, Lauren Greenfield, has been documenting an obsession with well, Some of you might have seen her film The Queen of Versailles about the rich couple in America trying to build the biggest house in the States.
1: We never sought out to build the biggest house in America. It's just, its like kind of happened...
0: But she's been really interested in this question of inequality and wealth and excess, starting in her hometown of L.A. and then all over the world. Her new film, Generation Wealth, looks back at her career and it tells the story of how the American dream came to be corrupted.
2: If I want to work 100 hours a week and never see my
0: family and die at an early age, that's my prerogative.
1: I've been a photographer for 25 years with my lens focused on wealth. I noticed that no matter how much people had they still want more I want to figure out why our obsession with wealth has grown it seemed to be a shift in the American dream I know the names of the Kardashians better than I know the names of my neighbors I realized wealth was much more than money it was whatever gave us value fame sex even plastic surgery for dogs
0: I caught up with Lauren a few weeks ago while she was in the UK for the Sheffield Doc Fest. I think we can just get going. Okay, perfect. I have to go and pick up my daughter from school. Having watched your film last night, I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking hard about how I balance work and family life.
1: <laughs> I'm actually so pleased about that. Somebody told me that after the screening in London that he, wanted, that, that he needed to go spend more time with his son. And I'm glad dads are having that reaction.
0: Lauren, I, I watched the film uh, yesterday evening and I started writing down the wor- words for what, what I thought the film was about. It's called Generation Wealth. So the first word I wrote down was wealth, but then I wrote down excess, and then I wrote down decay, and then I wrote down sex, and then work, and then consumerism, and then meaning, and then biography, and then family, and then redemption. <laughs> <laughs> what is this film about? It's a marvellous film, but what it, What essentially is it about? And what? And what was it that led you to want to look back over the first 25 years of your career?
1: Right. Yeah. Well, I guess I'll start with the last piece. What the reason I wanted to look back as I started to see around the time of the international financial crisis, that in some ways, it seemed like all of these individual stories I had shot and covered um, over this time period, starting with the early 90s, were somehow connected and maybe told a larger story about the way we were living and its excess and its consequences. I felt like, in some ways, a lot of the things that I was seeing at that time started in the early 90s. And in a way, the crash kind of made it like a morality tale. And I was also making a film called The Queen of Versailles at the time and started to think about the kind of addiction of consumerism or consumerism in terms of an addiction. And that really hit home when I was filming this woman, Jackie Siegel who was living in a 26,000 square foot mansion and that wasn't big enough. So they were building a 90,000 square foot mansion, which ultimately brought around their financial crash. And so I just started to think that, you know, looking back that there was something that I needed to say about what it all added up to. And when I began looking back, I also started to see that there was this historical, Shift That in some ways, the time I had been covering these things was actually a time of a kind of sea change in our values and aspirations. And I wanted to look at how the American dream had changed and how it seemed like we had gone from a culture that valued hard work and frugality and discipline and kind of making a better life for your children to... culture that just valued celebrity and narcissism and bling. And money was important, but also fake it till you make it was kind of just as important.
0: It it, was a fascinating coincidence for me that I watched your film in the same week as I chaired an event here at the RSA with Kate Pickett and Richard Wilkinson, who published a book called The Inner Level. And this is a book about why it is that unequal societies suffer from higher levels of various social pathologies, mental illness and crime. Um, And they argue it's because inequality and the anxieties that it generates about social status uh, are fundamentally corrosive to our well-being. I mean, it it feels like there's Mm. a real resonance between their very detailed statistical analysis and the powerful images and words in your film.
1: Yeah, I mean, that... That makes perfect sense. Um, I ended up feeling like in the film and with the subjects in the film that everybody kind of had this hole that they were trying to fill either with things or with achieving the perfect body or money or fame or whatever that was, and that that hole was more of a psychological one, and so it never never was filled.
0: There's a very poignant moment in the film where... Uh, there's a film of Donald Trump speaking at a rally, and we see that sitting behind him is the married couple that you featured in The Queen of Versailles, those people who had that riches to rags story. They lost everything. Uh, I guess they're not blaming the consumerist system, are they? They're blaming something very different. So whilst you show great sympathy for the people that you show in the film... My sense is that those people themselves will choose different targets for their anger.
1: Yeah, I mean, David and Jackie Siegel did not feel like they did anything wrong. And they, well, I I guess I shouldn't say that. At the end of the film, they do really question some of their choices. And they seem to have learned from the financial crisis. And they say, David says, I should have built less. I should have been happy with what I had. If I had built fewer buildings, this wouldn't have happened. We have to... Live within our means. When the crash happened, a lot of the people that I was interviewing learned from that crash that it was kind of this terrible collapse. But in it, we also, like, people also learned that they shouldn't borrow so much. They didn't need to have that bigger kitchen or that second car. And it was a kind of affirming moment to hear people learn. And yet, after the crash, a lot of things went back to how they had been before and so that really fed into my feeling about addiction that we do kind of go right back even if we know better and in a way the only thing that makes us change is hitting rock bottom with the with the metaphor of addiction and you know really having a bigger collapse and for me Iceland was a little bit like that the Iceland had a Even worse financial collapse and wasn't able to get bailed out. And so they used it as an opportunity to kind of think about their values, change, uh, make some structural changes. And in the US, we really did not. The equality has worsened. The stock market went up. The real estate market is crazier than ever. And then we elected Trump. And in that rally, he says, for me, what was a really profound line Trump says, It's not about me, it's about you. I am your voice. And that's what I really wanted to kind of leave the audience with, with Trump, that he's really a symptom of our pathology in a way, or where we are as a culture, and that in some ways he's the apotheosis of Generation Wealth. And while I never could have predicted his rise when you look back at the pictures and you look back at kind of what's happened in our culture, it seems like the writing was on the walls.
0: So the general view is that economic inequality and polarization drives a kind of cultural malaise, but I think you're reversing that. I think you're saying a kind of cultural malaise that begins with the corruption of the American dream that that's what underlies a set of processes, which then reinforce polarization. And as our sense of unease and unhappiness grows, we are ever more prone to blame other people and not to recognize that the fundamental problem is the system that we live in.
1: Mm. I mean, in in the part of the American dream was people used to kind of compare themselves to their neighbors and want the thing that their neighbor had that was maybe a little bit better than they had a, a later model car or a a better model house, uh, but in the same neighborhood. Now people spend more time with the people they know on television than their actual neighbors. Keeping up with the Joneses has literally become keeping up with the Kardashians and created a kind of aspirational gap where no one is satisfied with what they have because the goal is not only unrealistic, it's actually fictional.
0: I sense in the film, uh, Lauren, that you despite everything, remain a positive person. But, <laughs> the, you know, the counterculture, the critique of materialism and consumerism and excess, you know, in its modern version dates back to the 1960s. You know, we've had 50 years of these critiques articulated you know, brilliantly in all sorts of ways. Is there any reason to believe that that counterculture will have more success in the future than it's had in the past?
1: I'm not sure the counterculture is the answer either. I mean, I think what I um, tried to show is that we're all complicit and that it's kind of part of human nature to kind of have the urges that we do within the system that we're in. In a way, I even though we're kind of zooming towards the apocalypse in some way or towards an unsustainable future, the ending of the film is not downbeat and it's actually quite optimistic and i think it's i i got hope from the insights that people saw and and this feeling of kind of waking up and waking up to what's around us the people waking up were not you know hippies or protesters but they're you know the banker and the porn star and the mother of the beauty pageant girl and me and You know, everybody kind of has their own awakenings. And I think in that, there is a feeling of a possibility of change or a possibility of agency.
0: Lauren Greenfield, thank you for your uh, wonderful film, Generation Wealth, and for your earlier films, which I've also enormously enjoyed. And thank you for speaking to me.
1: Thank you. Thanks so much.
0: Lauren Greenfield's film, Generation Wealth, is out in cinemas and on demand on the 20th of July. So uh, this has been a fantastic conversation we've had in. We're running out of time. So really briefly, let's try to slip in the final bit of the programme, which is The Provocation. That's something that you've read that's kind of really fascinated you and that you want to share with me and with the world so what's your provocation this
2: week yeah so i recently came across this well it's it's a recent report from the center for social investigation into why people voted as they did in the brexit referendum right right back to brexit again i know you you all can't get enough of it um and lots of interesting stuff in it but because we, we don't have much time i want to zero in on, on one thing that they noted which is that and i quote Leave voters characterised Remain voters more accurately than Remain voters characterise Leave voters. Uh, so, so Leave voters understood right. why people voted Remain so better liber- than vice versa. Basically, liberals
0: are more more bigoted towards non-liberals than
2: non-liberals are to. Liberals. Yeah, and in the fact, there's other research that, that that shows that on that kind of general in that general sense, liberals are a little bit uh, less good at understanding conservatives than than vice versa. Um, so, I just think that's interesting. I'm not totally sure why it is
0: well it reminds me of a brilliant piece of research it was done about i don't know 15 years ago by a guy called stephen coleman he looked at two tribes he looked at what he called pjs political junkies yeah you know, people like me i guess maybe you and bbs people who love big brother and he oh, looked yes. at them and he asked them about each other's attitudes
2: for, for younger
0: listeners that's kind of like love island yeah yeah it is yeah. Like, it's like love island with slightly less sex and what was fascinating was that the pjs view well, the big the, the the big brother fans had respect for PJs. They weren't political. They maybe didn't even vote. They didn't understand politics. But they said, well, you know, it's, it's a legitimate thing. People are thing. into what they're into. They're into what yeah. they're into, and I guess it's important, and we should defer to their knowledge. The PJs despise the Big Brother fans. They thought they were stupid, ridiculous. And so this kind of notion that when it boils down to it, liberals are bigoted towards non-liberals... Uh, that's something that's a, that's that's something we've got to talk about again. And I, I think. think it
2: hurts liberals in the end, people on the left in the end, because they're, they're less good at understanding their opponent. Look, we need to get a conservative here and ask why it is we don't
0: understand him or her. Anyway, that's it for this episode. If you're enjoying this podcast, please tell us what you think. Leave a review in your podcast app. You can find us on Twitter. Ian is at Mr. Ian Leslie. I'm uh, RSA Matthew. Polarised was presented by Ian Leslie by me Matthew Taylor the producer was James Shield with production help from Jade Voles at Sheffield Dockfest and the whole thing was brought to you by the RSA